You found it, Japan What Podcast, coming at you from the Shinjuku studios of Tokyo, Japan. I'm your co-host, Matt Bigelow. Flying solo today, my friends. Flying solo indeed. Thank you for tuning in, and um, let's get started here. Uh, originally, originally I was supposed to have the co-host, Mr. 120, who uh, I guess is on assignment today. I think he was in the hospital, so let's make sure everything's okay with him. Um, but I am uh, in the studio, and we're going to do this anyways. I have some ideas. Um, a lot of uh, people are kind of saying, like, hey, now that uh, 2020 is over and uh, Donald Trump is out of office and uh, we got this new prime minister in Japan and things might be going back to normal, huh? I don't know. I don't know. I was out walking about, out in a boot as a Canadian, out in a boot for a walk a boot earlier today, uh, walking through town. I live in the center of Tokyo and uh, I spent a lot of time in my head wondering about geopolitics and things like that, uh, especially these days, because I don't really know what the hell is going on. I'm very confused, to be honest. And uh, everybody just seems to be doing their job. Everybody's walking around, delivering goods. Seems pretty normal on the ground floor of the civilization at the moment. But I don't know what the hell is going on. Um, for example, there's this program in Japan called the GoTo program, and it's meant to stimulate the economy during this coronavirus, and it was kind of a, a pet project of, of the new prime minister, Mr. Yoshihide Suga, uh, who was a lifelong bureaucrat who just kind of stepped into the position after Shinzo Abe um, left because of his, uh, his bloody bum, literally, and... He, you know, he realizes, Mr. Suga realizes that we have this economy, it's a vibrant economy, and it's a consumer economy, and a lot of Japanese economy is still based on um, hand-to-hand cash exchanges, uh, and it incrementally adds up when people spend enough money, right? Of course. So with the pandemic happening, everybody is told to stay home, but that's going to destroy the economy and all everybody's stores, and that's going to ravish their tax revenues for the government. And the government spending GDP to whatever spend ratio in Japan is one of the top in the world. So if their if their if their incremental tax base uh, decreases, uh, you know, by a landslide or whatever, they're going to be left with a lot of expenditures, and they're trying to build up their uh, off offshore missile defense systems while China is kind of doing this whole thing in the ocean let's make oceans let's make them ours according to the old uh chinese metaphor because <laughs> they're not allowed to have metaphors um or are they no they have plenty of metaphors uh anyways so anyways regarding this go-to travel thing Sapporo City had a spike in coronavirus cases, so it's kind of taken off the list. You can't use your government-funded travel coupons in the middle of a pandemic where everybody's required to wear a mask and sit diagonally across from the tables from each other at restaurants because we need to keep the economy going, but we still need to be under total lockdown at the same time. It's, it's two complete opposite things happening at the same time. I guess the Japanese are better at, uh, at um, uh, compartmentalizing this mentally than I am, but I kind of go, I don't know, man, I, what's going on here? Like, honestly, what's going on? 
here's an interesting statistic. I'm going to go through some statistics. That's what I'm going to do. But I'm going to introduce this one. About 40 million people have used the GoTo travel campaign in Japan. 40 million. About 180 of them were registered as contracting an infection of the novel coronavirus. When you do the multiplication on that, when you divide 40 million by 200, you get some insane fraction of a percent. It's like, I did it last night, 0.0000004%. It might even be more zeros. I'm giving a conservative five, five zeros beyond the decimal point. And, but at the same time, we have to continue these kind of lockdowns and go into most critical care cases and everything like that. Um, so this is the whole point is that we always have to be panicking. We always have to be in complete mindfulness about spreading the virus, but we also have to travel all across the country, spending our government travel coupons in order to keep the economy going at the same time. Very confusing. A lot of people, I think, just go along with it. They're like, hey, the government tells me to do it. I'm going to do it because the government would um, always keep me in their best interests. So a lot of people, I'm kind of COVIDed out. Everybody's COVIDed out. We're coming up to one year since this podcast began. And I remember a year ago starting it with Tom, who 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 quit because um, he's no gear Tom. It, we were like, hey, let's do this lifestyle, Japan, music, and everything like that. And then our guests started coming on the show, but they couldn't promote their shows. Podcasts being a resilient form against the coronavirus pandemic because nobody in official um, capacity even understands what it is or how to regulate it. Cha-ching, right? Oh, I mean, not cha-ching, but ongoing because there is no real money in uh, podcasting. But let's go into it. So... Let's take a look. In the past, since this is the coronavirus cases taken from the toyokezai.net, in Oct- on October 19th, nationwide, 315 people tested positive for the coronavirus. Then the other day, on uh, November 22nd, 2,150 people tested positive for the coronavirus. So that's like an increase of, well, let's just say almost threefold. It's threefold-ish. But the amount of people being discharged on October 25th was 421. And up until just a couple of days ago, the it peaked at 1,400 people being discharged. Okay. So the positive rates are going up, but the discharging rates are going up as well. Um, deaths have increased. I remember on October 12th, there were five deaths nationwide. Five. And then the recent peak, because we'll just go to with recent peak, on November 20th, 20 people died. Okay. Okay. But let's go by age. And I've been doing this since March or April. And people in their 20s in Japan, deaths, two. Since, since, since March or February even. Deaths of people in their 30s, six. Deaths of people in their 40s, 20. Deaths of people in their 50s, 62. Deaths of people in their 60s, 178. 70s, 
490, and 80, 1,092. So the total number of deaths nationwide since the begin- this began was 1,980 deaths. So, you know, that's significant enough. It's nothing to sneeze at. But let's take a look. So there's 1,980 deaths. 1,000 of them, 1,092 are in their 80s. So that's already more than half. And then the other 500 cases about are in their 70s. So that's three quarters. And then another 170. So there's really been less than like, there's like about 100 deaths of people below their 50s since this began in the beginning of March. So what the hell are we doing here? Why is this such a big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Well, we all know why. Um, it's because of, of building back better and going back to everything here. Uh, I work in newsprint media, and I've just been noticing, well, uh, build back better everywhere. Uh, Joe Biden's political slam- campaign was that, a slam pain. Um, yep, America. And uh, the UN says build back better. He, Yoshihide Suga, the prime minister of Japan, in his address to the United Nations about a couple months ago, said, we plan to build back better. The um, embassy of, like, Trinidad or something like that and a message to the Japanese government said we aim to build back better. So everything is about this build back better. And when I was working as a um, essentially an English teacher that was built an artificial intelligence study school for um, telecom engineers and executives at a, one of the major um, telecom companies in, in, in Japan, and I did that for five years, I kept seeing people talking about the fourth revolution and using wireless communications for payment services and trying to install this new pipeline that would redo everything else. And I think Japan is trying to use its rather secure and advanced know-how to tuck it into the application layer of this fourth industrial revolution. Uh, And that's kind of what this is all about. Um, uh, all the stadiums are going to be are being equipped with 5G so that you can um, order hot dogs with your phone and have them delivered to you. They always say by drone. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Or by robot. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. Maybe if you go to a kiosk, they might have some robots there. But it's not really about the forward-facing robots. It's about the pipeline behind it all. Um, if you remember in the uh, earlier part when Wuhan was exploding with the virus, um, I did research on uh, the Wuhan, uh, not, not the lab and the bat soup and all that, although I did that. What struck me as the most shocking thing about Wuhan was that everything was being built in Wuhan in some sort of faction or layer, electronics, um, security equipment, automobile manufacturing, um, wireless communications. It was this global hub of like essential components that are used in everything all the time, all along this city on the Yangtze River, pushed deep into China. And when the when the when the coronavirus exploded, the government just said, "No, we're going to close down this city." Therefore, thereby kind of cutting off the global supply chain of everything we needed. So I think that there's this rush to reestablish these global supply chains. But then China as well wants to implement its supply chain technology using the um, advanced uh, capability of Japanese know-how as part of that layer. 
That seems to be what's going on for me. And it sounds insane, but at the same time, I'm not sure. Could we continue going on with a Wuhan uh, flu, Wuhan virus in, 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 with manufacturing, com like combining that together? So I was reading this book, and this kind of ties into it. Um, when I was at the telecom company, the engineers would know when something I was introducing to them to study was bullshit or not bullshit because they're engineers. And unfortunately, most of the news about um, high tech is kind of bullshit because it's written by journalists who don't know much about it. They might like it or they might like using interfaces or they might like wireless technology, but they could never tell you how it works. So they just, most journalists just kind of go and use some sort of prototype equipment and go, how funky is that? Aren't I special to be using it? And that's fine. That's just what it is. But when you introduce that material to people who are studying advanced radio frequencies to find out ways to um, uh, improve the... The, the reduce the noise of other radio frequencies interfering with your radio frequency so that you can improve the customer experience by having faster packets delivered in more secure manners um, and a more secure manner when you're out in the wilderness somewhere, you're going to kind of look at uh, some journalist walking around with a VR helmet and going, all right, yeah, sure, but uh, it doesn't really help me. So I had to eventually find materials for these people that, that impressed them. And for some reason... Kaifu Lee, who is the Sinovation Ventures um, CEO and a, and a major um, proponent of the AI economy, um, and when I was working there, one of the um, largest investments in AI happened over that period of time between 2015 and 2020, like $100 billion was allocated to it, essentially. Um, I started following what the trends were, what the investments were, and when I came across, this, this book is kind of going crazy right now, and in the um, the right-wing conservative circles. I'm not a right-wing conservative circle, uh, but I, when, I found, when I saw this book, COVID-19, The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab, I was like, well, that's a strange title. Why The Great Reset? So I read the back, and it said, Klaus Schwab is the founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum. He is the author of various books, including The Fourth Industrial Revolution and a lifelong advocate of stakeholder capitalism. So he's this, um, you know, one of these Germans who, who talks about the modern age and how he can make the technology and import it to where we do and where we go. And unfortunately, many people have to suffer. But in the end, we have a better economy for more inclusive society. One of those guys. Um, and some people, like I mentioned earlier, saying like, huh, it looks like this whole thing, Trump's gone and we got 2020 is going to be over and maybe this whole COVID thing, even though the cases are up, the deaths are down. So maybe we can kind of go back to normal. Seeing as Mr. Michael 120 is not here today, and I'll bring up some other things later on. I thought I would read some excerpts from this um, book called The Great Reset. I've, I've ran across a lot of commentary, a lot of um, shocking rebuttals, but I haven't really come across people just reading from the book and explaining what it says. It might be a little bit boring, but if you're interested to see what's in the pipeline, because this stuff gets disseminated you know, in a couple of years, and eventually it makes it makes its way into the news and into our lives and into our applications and into our, you know, in this case, it's going to be our surveillance systems um, and, and so on. 
actually, before I get into this, I, I have been really studying about 5G surveillance technology from the perspective of engineers and radio frequency for a long time. And a lot of people are saying, ah, oh, 5G, it's very fast and very powerful, but it can't really transmit very well. Well, it, that's very true, but when you repeat it, when you put a repeater, uh, a transmission repeater on things, it can, it, can, it can find you, essentially. So the stoplights, the street lights, all of the lights are perfectly positioned to have 5G repeaters put on them that can then rebroadcast 5G signals down to the street level. And then in the street lights, you can put facial recognition cameras that don't need any external uh, power uh, suppliers because they can run off the energy already existing in the street lamp or even off of the light itself. And so when you put like a 4K camera or a 6, 8K camera into these street lamps and and, and, and then implement them with 5G um, reception and frequency capabilities, you can create a panopticon of surveillance. And a lot of people are kind of saying, I don't need a mask. I'm going to take my mask off or I'm going to conceal my identity with a mask no, what what could happen in the future if if we do have this um, this Klaus Schwabian uh, panopticon of, of of digital surveillance to find wherever COVID is and then isolate it somehow? Some people will say, "I'm going to put on my face mask and facial recognition won't be able to see me." Well, if there's a thermal camera, your digital your biometrics will pop up through the mask and the, 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 it's potentially able to see who you are and read who you are. How about this? I'm not going to wear a mask because I don't agree with it. What about AI camera image segmentation that will be able to identify people wearing and not wearing masks? There will be countries where that'll be okay, but then certain um, people in governments will say, hey, if you're not wearing a mask, you might just be killing my grandmother, and then that's going to be my empty seat at the Thanksgiving dinner table. I can't allow that, so they'll put it in. So you'll have people not wearing a mask, and those people will be able to identify, be able to be identified in real time and spot them. So whether you do wear the mask or you don't wear the mask, it will be um, able to combine thermal imagery and um, high-definition AI facial recognition cameras uh, and then surveil people whether they want to wear a mask or not. It's like a double whammy of panopticonical um, punch, panopticonical hurdle jumping. And people say, say, well, what about all these cameras are going to be taking up so much bandwidth? No, it just gets changed into code. If, if they can see your face and it registers as you with an 85% um, uh, probability, they'll create that your code is there. Are you wearing a mask? Yes, that code will be there. Are you not wearing a mask? Yes, that code will be there. What's your temperature like? Oh, you look like over or under a certain temperature degree. That just gets transferred into code. And then the uh, telephone poles will, will, will transfer that code to another repeater that sends it back to a cloud system that will um, input the data into like a spreadsheet or something like that. And there you go. That's your panopticonical uh, hurdle jumpers there who, who are able to put this in. So everybody's saying, hey, let's just go back to normal. Let's just, let's just forget everything ever happened. 
Trump's gone. 2020 is over. Let's just go to the park and have some fun. I'm sure people will be able to do that. But this is from The Great Reset, and I'm going to read some excerpts starting from now. Um, this is the Japan What podcast, kind of going um, uh, into the weeds, but into the weeds of truth. I love people who say that. This is the, this is the truth media, the, unlike the the fake news and then they just play like five minutes of CNNBC and then they come back after they've just stolen somebody's like professionally packaged news service and go, see, wasn't that crazy? That's kind of what I'm doing though, isn't it? All right. At the time of writing, June 2020, this is from page 12 of The Great Reset, COVID-19 The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab. The pandemic continues to worsen globally. Many of us are pondering when things will return to normal. The short response is never. Nothing will ever return to the broken sense of normalcy that prevailed prior to this crisis because the coronavirus pandemic marks a fundamental inflection point in our global trajectory. Some analysts call it a major bifurcation. Others refer to a deep crisis of biblical proportions. But the essence remains the same. The world as we knew it in the early months of 2020 is no more, dissolved in the context of the pandemic. Radical changes of such consequence are coming that some pundits have referred to as a before coronavirus, BC, and after coronavirus, AC era. We will continue to be surprised by both the rapidity and unexpected nature of these changes. As they conflate with each other, they will provide, provoke second, third, fourth, and more order consequences, cascading effects and unforeseen outcomes. In so doing, they will shape a new normal, radically different from the one we will progressively be leaving behind. Many of our beliefs and assumptions about what the world could or should look like will be shattered in the process. So, that's the guy who wants um, everything to uh, change. He's saying there is no new normal. And I'm also trying to, I'm also seeing that. Uh, where people try to have a normal a normal day where they go in the park and play and like police come and drones fly overhead and Karens come out with their cameras and their masks and start shouting at everyone and then reporting them and stuff like that. Um, so th this is the tone of the book. And most of the book has nothing to do with coronavirus itself. It has nothing to do with the deaths, with the health effects. It's all about how the coronavirus can be used to essentially take what was happening in China and implement it around the world. Um, China's QR code system um, totally changes banking methods. It's a totally new system. Uh, the way that it can track payments in real time can um, provide data to such an extreme that when you look at like a country's GDP, the way that the QR code enabled digital wallet tracking system can uh, amalgamate the amount of money actually being spent can be something like three or four times a country's GDP. And you think, well, how does that happen? Doesn't the GDP register everything? Well, does it register all those cash transactions in fast food restaurants, uh, in mom and pop shops, people that are just transferring money to each other through their digital wallets instead of handing somebody like a 1,000 yen note or a 10,000 yen note? It tracks all of that and it puts your location data, it puts the time that you did it, it puts the digital wallet um, owner and, and all of that stuff. So when you look at the crazy banking elites, uh, especially from Europe, and I guess we could also say from New York, uh, and, and they see that the, this amount of data 
backed by the transactional value of exchanges between people for goods and services. And it doesn't require huge amounts of infrastructure because a QR code can be printed by anybody and put anywhere. And then the digital software is managed by the user. So I don't need an entire bank to handle my um, finances. I just need to download an app, register my phone number, and I'm off to the fucking markets, dude. And so this is kind of what's happening. And the COVID-19 is being used as a way to implement that worldwide. Next excerpt. At the very least, this is from page 18 of COVID-19, The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab. At the very least, as we will argue, the pandemic will accelerate systemic changes that were already apparent prior to the crisis. The partial retreat from globalization, this is Matt here, by retreating from globalization, I think they mean rushing towards uh, multilateralism. Um, back to the book. Uh, the growing decoupling between the U.S. and China, the acceleration of automation, concerns about heightened surveillance, and the growing power of tech. Uh, the broader point is this. The possibilities for change in the resulting new order are now unlimited and only bound by our imaginations, for better or worse. Hmm. Societies could be poised to become either more egalitarian or more authoritarian. This is very true. I was actually very surprised... I was always more of like not a utopianist, but I've always looked at technology as a way for me to expand um, my capabilities. Like uh, I don't, I use a, a digital wallet in Japan called PayPay. I used to teach the engineers who um, developed the service, although it's originally from India. But I never saw it as a way to just replace everything in my wallet. I was like, okay, I have more access to cash. The same thing with the internet. I didn't, I don't have Netflix, but I didn't just replace my my regular wants and desires with the internet. I'm like, that's a broader way to do things. Um, so, but for a lot of people, they see something like Uber Eats and it just like, you had 10% of the fat people now eating fast food three times a day. Oh, now you can have 50% of the fat people eating fast food three times a day because you just push a button on your phone and someone's going to haul over 25 Big Macs for your fat ass and you're not going to be shamed from eating them all because you're in your house and not in public where people will look at you like the piece of shit you are. So the same thing with um, <clears throat> Netflix in a way. Netflix has great shows, but they realize that people will just binge watch Netflix so the, the writers purposefully slow down the pacings of the shows and include more and more details in them that don't need to be there just so that it provides that model of binge-watchery that gets um, recirculated in the business meetings and so on to increase your engagement and keep people on platform and, and preventing them, not preventing them, but um, incentivizing them in a way or so that they don't go to somewhere else. And I've never looked at it that way. I've always been like, I can get more, I can get more. But a lot of people are just like, I can get more of this thing that ends up being negative. Uh, and that's kind of what's happening. Um, all right, let's take a look at... I had uh, some things highlighted that I've been reading in this book. The titles are kind of funny, Interdependence. Mm. 
if we had one word to distill the essence of the 21st century, century, it would have to be interdependence, a byproduct of globalization and technological process. It can essentially be defined as the dynamic of reciprocal dependence among the elements that compass a system, that compose a system. That's not really that interesting, I'm sorry to say, but like here we go. No matter what the casual explanation is, the end game of all of this is clear. As consumers and producers, spouses and parents, leaders and followers, we are all being subjugated to constant, albeit discontinuous, rapid change. And that's also very true. Just think about myself going back to like the 1990s, gasoline car, CDs in the car. Uh, 15 years later, it's Bluetooth smartphones connecting to your uh, stereo system with 360 cameras attached to it and all this stuff that's really crazy and you know now you have it hybrids and now we also have like everything went from uh tv and then to cable and then to youtube and then now even youtube is seeing a massive exodus because all of a sudden it has to be who approved for everything and uh, then you get scolded for trying to go somewhere else so it's kind of strange um, the some pundits call this new phenomenon the dictatorship of urgency. It can indeed take extreme forms. Research performed by scientists at Microsoft shows, for example, that being slower by no more than 250 milliseconds is enough for a website to lose hits to its faster competitors. This reminds me of the... Um, the computers that were farther away from the from the New York Stock Exchange, where even if you had uh, fiber uh, cable connecting to your stock uh, exchange, if you were one kilometer farther away than your competitor, then they would be able to tap into the faster exchange rates than you, and you would lose out. Here's another one. This is on page 33. Just to provide a broad and oversimplified example, the containment of the coronavirus pandemic will necessitate a global surveillance network capable of identifying new outbreaks as soon as they arise, laboratories in multiple locations around the world that can rapidly analyze new viral strains and develop effective treatments, large IT infrastructures so that communities can prepare and react effectively, appropriate and coordinated policy mechanisms to efficiently implement the decisions once they are made and so on uh, that's cloud-based um, decentralized uh, groups of authoritarians who uh, push buttons on their phones to uh, enact uh, laws and edicts that get set out to everybody billions billions of people in a matter of seconds in a matter of seconds the important point is this each separate activity by itself is necessary to address the pandemic, but is insufficient if not considered in conjunction with the others. Um, yeah, so there we go. Let's take a look at the next quote that I have lined up here. It's kind of, what I've really noticed about this type of um, medium is it, it's, it can be very difficult to talk about because it's, so multi-layered and oversimplified in a way that requires massive participation, but we're already seeing it. We're already seeing it. We all, so many people walk around these days, actually, if we're looking at this new world order and this new, this new um, societal contract, the social contract, for me to walk around with my held held up high and no mask and walk down the street is considered dangerous. But if I wanted to put on a mask, hold a smartphone in front of my face, 
and walk around town, nobody cares. That is a major change in the way that humans are interacting with each other. I fucking hate it. Let's take a look. Uh, This is page 43. Because consumer sentiments are what really drive economies, a return to any kind of normal will only happen when and not before confidence returns. Individual perceptions of safety drive consumer and business decisions, which means that sustained economic improvement is contingent upon two things. The confidence that the pandemic is behind us, without which people will not consume and invest, and the proof that the virus is defeated globally, uh, without which people will not be able to feel safe, first locally and subsequently further afield. Not be able to feel safe. What this means is... um, in your phone and attached to your wallet is a um, something that will certify whether you have been uh, cleared from COVID and that will allow you to feel safe with everybody else who can hold up their phones and also feel safe because they've been COVID cleared by the technocracy. Let's read from page 51, Employment. The pandemic is confronting the economy with a labor market crisis of gigantic proportions. The devastation is such and so sudden as to leave even the most seasoned policymakers almost speechless. And we're still nigh on policyless. But you know what happened? You know what totally happened? Amazon profits up 100%, Google up, everything up except for mom and pop shops all the way down. In testimony before the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking on May 19th, the Federal Reserve System's chairman, Jerome Ray Powell, confessed, This precipitous drop in economic activity has caused a level of pain that is hard to capture in words, as lives are upended amid great uncertainty about the future. In just the two months of March and April 2020, more than 36 million Americans lost their jobs, reversing 10 years of job gains. In the U.S., like elsewhere, temporary dismissals caused by the initial lockdowns may become permanent, inflicting intense social pain and profound structural damage on countries' economies. The level of global unemployment will ultimately depend on the depth of the collapse in economic activity, but hovering around on exceeding two-digit levels across the world are a given. In the U.S., a harbinger of difficulties to come on elsewhere, it is estimated that the official rate of unemployment could reach a peak of 25% in 2020, a level equivalent to that of the Great Depression. That would be even higher if hidden unemployment were to be taken into account. As for GDP growth, the magnitude and severity of the unemployment situation are country-dependent. As of June 2020, the rise in unemployment rate um, was much higher than anywhere else. In April 2020, the U.S. unemployment rate had risen by 11.2 percentage points. Anyways, this is pretty um, uh, U.S. heavy here. I'll skip it. But this is kind of more what I'm... Looking at, in a slightly more distant time, two categories of people will face a particularly bleak employment situation. Young people entering for the first time a job market devastated by the pandemic and workers susceptible to be replaced by robots. These are fundamental issues at the intersection of economy, society, and technology with defining implications for the future of work. Automation in particular will be a source of acute concern. 
in the pre-pandemic era, new artificial intelligence-based technologies were being gradually introduced to introduce some of the tasks performed by human employees. The COVID-19 crisis and its accompanying measures of social distancing has suddenly accelerated this process of innovation and technological change. Chatbots, which were often used to the use of the voice recognition technology behind Amazon Alexa's and other software that can complete tasks normally performed by human employees, are being rapidly introduced. Uh, these are different from the these are different from the chatbots from like five or six years ago. These chatbots are basically very similar to non-player characters in the liberal media now in um, video games that act as menus and you talk to them and they give you what the, what you need instead of somebody in another country that doesn't. These innovations, provoked by necessity, will soon result in hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of job losses. This might result in an automation anxiety. The Jacobins or the Jacobins will come in and destroy your new IT systems. But how can you climb up on top of all of the uh, street lamps in a city that's 5G enabled and smash all of them out before somebody by drone just replaces them the next day? So... <clears throat> This will be the last read, and then I'll kind of say something. But as the critique of economic growth moves to center stage, consumerism's financial and uh, cultural dominance in public and private life will be overhauled. This is made obvious in consumer-driven degrowth activism in some niche segments. Niche or niche, I prefer niche. Like advocating for less meat or fewer flights. By triggering a period of enforced degrowth, the pandemic has spurred renewed interest in this movement that wants to reverse the pace of economic growth, leading to more than 1,100 experts from around the world to release a manifesto in May 2020 putting forth a degrowth strategy to tackle the economic and human crisis caused by COVID-19. Their open letter calls for the adoption of a democratically planned, yet adaptive, sustainable, and equitable downscale of the economy leading to a future where we can all live better with less so it's just these insane it looks like a like a technocratic takeover where the things that you want to do you just can't do them because it's been decided that you can't do them but if you prove that you're covid free you'll be able to go on select destination trips um, with your universal basic income that makes it equitable for everybody to exist in society together. But I don't see, like, the thing is, is that when you look at what goes on in the World Economic Forum and Davos and when they all meet in the summer and stuff like that, it includes a lot of the top bankers from Japan because Japan is a kind of a global hub of finance in its own right. They all fly in the private jets and go there. Then they come out of there and say, you can't eat meat and you need an electric scooter. <laughs> so I'm not sure about all this. So this whole thing about everybody kind of going, um, now that 2020 is over, we can get back to normal. Let's just, no, you don't understand. That's not what's being planned. That's not what's being planned. Before everybody had cars and roads, there was no cars and roads. But they planned cars and roads. Now we all have cars and roads. This whole thing about this new normal, build back better, is this global panopticon of AI-backed surveillance technology. And some of it's going to be good, but the, 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 the power to abuse it and implement it in societies that don't even have much social cohesion, you can overlay this, this wireless panopticon in, into almost anything, like a plug-and-play uh, function on a computer, 
just pl- plug and play it into your society and then like a developer tune it to what you needed to do and then unleash it onto the world. You know, we're already seeing it. I remember in 2015 when Facebook started releasing algorithms, I was like, do we more AI backed algorithms? I was like, do we really need wireless Facebook AI, you know, um, psychological influencing strategies flying around the atmosphere and into my pocket then when i open up my pocket it starts influencing me and people are like no you're crazy that doesn't happen but obviously it does because if you put something on facebook everybody will start hating you for it based on its algorithms or if you want to have like a biblical uh, a bible uh prayer and it gets labeled as an alt-right conspiracy theory, 50,000 people will show up to protest a person who just wanted a 20-person event there. It's happened before, it'll happen again. So this incremental stepping into our social um, psychological framework of how we interact with each other in society is already well underway, and it's only going to continue this way. So for me, the solution is this. Batten down the hatches. Just go back to being a local person. That's what I try to do these days. Um, Batten down the hatches, be local. This whole idea that I need to go to um, some far off land and in order to get there, jump through 85 medical hurdles that are constantly being updated by the cloud doesn't really sound appealing to me. The whole idea of travel was to kind of show up you're free, and you wander around, and then you go home. Hopefully you don't get robbed or murdered. That's going to change. It's all going to change. So, so what can we expect other than that? Well, unfortunately, my, my view of the future is, is positive in the fact that hopefully I can um, exist in Japan and provide my services uh, to the Japanese people, and you know, I get an exchange for that. I'm not exactly against this whole panopticonical surveillance society, by the way. It sounds like I am. I'm just more skeptical about how it can be abused. Um, but um, I think on a macro scale, I think everything is just going to be fake. I think this this whole recent 2020 election, it was fake. I'm not saying it was rigged or anything like that. I'm just saying it was fake. And now we live we live in a fake world. Everything that's being broadcast, I, I kind of look at it as fake. I don't trust a lot of it anymore. So a lot of it I do trust, uh, but I, I see only one-sided things all the time. I can go on to an app called Parlay or Parler, and it's conservative Trump memes. I go on to Twitter. There's still some conservatives. It's still good for AI and technology people. But as far as like the political commentary there, it's it's just it's just one sided. So when everything is just one sided, wherever you go, it's kind of fake. So for me, the broader perspectives of this developing technology, where it's just completely one sided walls of uh, of, of circuitous circuitous echo chambery kind of information delivery systems and groups and things like that, I'm just kind of going. I guess it's a fake world now. So it's, it's very bleak, uh, but that's the way I, I look at it. I, I honestly think that um, in a lot of the places in the world, you might have like, hey, let's have a party, but somebody there pulls out their phone and puts it onto Twitter and somebody else notices that somebody wasn't following some sort of social distancing protocol and the cops come at your door and haul you off for questioning. 
I see that. That's kind of the future. So I don't really trust enough. I don't, I don't trust. There's probably less than 20 people I trust, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, imagine gathering 20 people with the odds of, of somebody there now uh, potentially uh, filming something with their phone in, in an effort to liven up the mood only to have some sort of AI program send the police to, to hunt you down. So there we go. Good luck, everybody. That's my outlook. It's been on my mind. It's rather bleak. It's not that positive. I've just, I'm, I'm, I'm a new father. I have this new family. I'm looking at the future and I'm kind of going, hmm, not sure what's going on. It's a, it looks very utopian, but at the same time, as long as you submit, you must submit to the utopia in order to believe into it. So there you go. This has been. The Japan Wood Podcast coming at you from central Tokyo, Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. Thank you for tuning in, and uh, I'd like to listen to what you have to say. A year ago when this podcast started, it was very rosy. We had lots of events. We had lots of people calling in. We had people chiming in with their lifestyles. Now what's going on is very, very different. wear my mask and wash my hands after going home.